0: For another edition of Fighting for the Faith Tuesday, February 8th, 2011 Now as odd as this is going to sound Today we're doing our light version for the week I have personal reasons But the other part of it is, is I want to build on this uh, lecture later in the week So I want to get this out earlier details forthcoming. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. As a result, uh well we've got to do some cleanup work now i today we're going to do our light version for the week like i said at the the uh at the opening of the program and what i'm going to be presenting today is a lecture about martin luther's bondage of the will presented by a well um, a gentleman who is kind of like in the presbyterian uh reformed ranks he's not a lutheran in fact uh, this is a lecture presented by uh the reverend angus stewart of uh, covenant protestant reformed fellowship and uh i think that is in ireland and so uh yeah it's this is a um, an interesting uh, let me let me check something real quick here let me make sure i i've got the uh the map coordinates uh, correct about uh, this Yeah, Northern Ireland. Um, Antrim in Northern Ireland. uh, The Reverend Angus Stewart of uh, Covenant Protestant Reformed Church. The name of his lecture, by the way, is entitled uh, The Bondage of the Will Was Martin Luther Right? And it's a fascinating lecture. It's very well done. And there's things in this lecture that I want to build on later in the week. So that's one of the reasons I'm getting it out early. So uh what we're going to do here is I'm going to play the lecture I'm going to pause partway through pay some bills and you know so it'll be broken up into two parts but uh you know it was a one part thing and it's it's just really fascinating very well done and interesting to hear somebody who's not a Lutheran talking about Luther's uh bondage of the will and uh, the the idea here is is that uh, the um the the Calvinists and the Lutherans are in agreement on the bondage of the will. And, you know, they call it total depravity. We call it original sin. It's pretty much the same thing. Anyway, uh, without any further ado, here is the Reverend Angus Stewart on his lecture, The Bondage of the Will. Was Martin Luther right?
1: The 16th century Reformation was the greatest work, we believe, of the ascended Christ in the history of his New Testament church. The greatest figure of the 16th century Reformation, excepting perhaps John Calvin, was Martin Luther. Martin Luther was the greatest figure of the Reformation from several (laughs) perspectives. He was, of course, the man who started the Reformation by nailing his 95 theses to the door of the church at Wittenberg, although someone could argue that Ulrich Zwingli was beginning his reformatory work in Switzerland around the same time. Luther was also the most heroic of the reformers. We all remember his famous words spoken at the Diet of Worms before the emperor and all the church dignitaries of his day. And he refused to recant. And he said, here I stand, so help me God. And he opposed the authorities of his day. The pope, of course, lashed a papal bull against him. Exurge, domine, arise, Lord, and defeat the enemies of the church. Luther was not quailed because he believed in Jesus Christ risen from the dead and he burned the papal bull. As well as the most heroic, Luther was far and away the most colorful of the reformers. He used, and anyone will know this who read his works, he used the most earthy and vivid language. People have said of Luther that his language had hands and feet, and that's true. One of the most popular works of Luther are his little table talk. Writings and quotes of Luther written down by those who ate at his table and compiled some years later of all the pithy and wise sayings that he came out with. And you get the picture of a man who would have been superb company, a great man to spend the evening with, who would have done you good. He was a colourful man and an heroic man who started the Reformation. Of course, Luther, though, was not without his faults and not without his sins. We also remember Luther as the monk who changed the world. He changed the world from many different perspectives. He reformed Christian marriage, giving it a place of dignity with Christian ministers. Because before that, for about 500 years, the Roman Church had insisted that the priests not marry. He also shaped the German language through his Bible translation and through his many pamphlets. A forming force in that language. And then, most importantly, Luther brought about a reformation under God, a reformation in church and theology, which forever changed the face of Christendom in Europe, and then in due time in North America, in Australia, in Asia, all around the world. Biography Magazine, in 1999, in the month of December, so therefore at the end of the second millennium, as it's popularly conceived, Biography Magazine, a secular magazine, had a poll of the most important people of the millennium. That magazine said that Martin Luther, in their mind, was the third most important figure. He was behind Johannes Gutenberg, the famous printer, And behind Christopher Columbus, the sailor who reached the New World, the Americas, and there was Luther third, in the eyes of the secular thinkers. Now that's Luther. What was this Reformation which he started all about? What was the key issue at the Reformation? I'd like to ask you, what do you think was the Reformation all about? Was it about the ungodly lifestyle and ignorance Of the priests was it about the authority of the Pope was pilgrimages were pilgrimages and relics at the heart of the Reformation protest what about purgatory and indulgences how about asking Martin Luther that question the man who started the Reformation a man who was right in the thick of the Reformation till his dying day Luther What was your protest all about? And if you asked Luther, Luther would say, I wrote in my lifetime over 50 volumes of pamphlets and books. But you know I wrote one book which is more important than all the rest. This book, The Bondage of the Will. And here's a quote from The Bondage of the Will in which Luther speaks to Erasmus, the man against whom he's writing the book. He speaks to Erasmus about free will at the very end of the book. This is what Luther says to Erasmus. You alone, Erasmus, in contrast with all others, have attacked the real thing, that is, the essential issue. You have not wearied me with those extraneous issues about the papacy, purgatory, indulgences, and such like. Trifles rather than issues. In respect of which almost all to date have sought my blood, though without success, you, Erasmus, and you alone have seen the hinge on which it all turns, and you have aimed for the vital spot. For that I heartily thank you, for it is more gratifying to me to deal with this issue. Martin Luther said it's free will. That's at the heart of the Reformation. This question does unregenerate man have the power of himself to choose jesus christ and be saved that was luther's analysis now the question then comes to us did you know that free will was the vital spot in the reformation debate with rome did you know that free will was the hinge there's a door the hinge is the point at which the whole thing turns did you know this Have you heard a sermon exposing free will as false doctrine in a Protestant church? If you haven't, then there's something wrong, something seriously wrong. For this is the vital spot. This is the hinge of the Reformation. And these aren't my words. These are the words of Martin Luther. And he ought to know what the Reformation and what Protestantism is all about. Now Luther's Bondage of the Will, as I said, was written as a response to a diatribe by Erasmus entitled The Freedom of the Will. Erasmus writes a book, The Freedom of the Will. Luther writes a book, The Bondage of the Will. That prompts the question, who was Erasmus? Erasmus was a Dutch Renaissance humanist, Erasmus was the greatest scholar of his day. His friends and patrons included the kings, the princes, the intellectual of his age. All over Europe. Erasmus taught at noted universities such as those at Paris, Oxford, Cambridge. He taught Greek and he taught theology. Erasmus in his spare time made scholarly editions of the church fathers and published a Greek New Testament, the first one. And the question came to Luther like this. Luther, wouldn't it be marvelous if Erasmus would enlist on the side of the Reformation? If we could get Erasmus fighting for us. He's learned. He's witty. He's highly esteemed. If Erasmus was with us, this would bring intellectual responsibility, respectability, to the reformation Erasmus could influence the princes and the intellectuals of Europe and so Luther take Erasmus on board and help the reformation forward and Luther remember this they urged that Erasmus himself is already critical of the Roman church hasn't he written books mocking the profligate lives of the priests hasn't he berated the church for having such a gross ignorance of the Bible and Greek and theology. Here is a man who ought to be with us. He can urge reformation in the church. We should take him on board. That was the appeal to Luther. Luther, though, had serious misgivings about Erasmus. Luther understood the standpoint from which Erasmus criticized the Church of Rome. Luther saw, unlike most, that Erasmus' criticism of the Church of Rome was not drawn from sacred scripture, but that Erasmus criticised the Church based upon reason and human understanding. And that, for Luther, was wrong-headed. Luther also saw that Erasmus was far more grieved by the moral failures of the Church of Rome far more grieved by the moral failures rather than the doctrinal failures. Luther, on the other hand, said, yes, these priests are profligate. That's terrible. But why are they profligate? It's their doctrine. If we can reform the church's doctrine, her priests imbued with the love of God will live godly. Luther said, doctrine first, then life. Erasmus said, life first, and then but he never shouted it he only whispered it Luther too could see that Erasmus's criticism not based on scripture but based upon natural understanding Erasmus' criticisms more interested in the practical lives and profligacy of the priests being wrong would mean that Erasmus ultimately would be a coward. Luther viewed Erasmus as a coward Erasmus you see liked respectability Erasmus wanted to maintain the approval of the scholars and the cardinals in the church. And so when Erasmus criticized the church, he criticized her priests, sometimes he even mocked them, but he would never criticize them too severely and especially at the cardinal doctrinal points. And Erasmus, in effect, actually died. In the Church of Rome. He never even separated it, separated from it. Why? Because he was a scholar, the quintessential scholar. And he wanted peace and quiet in Europe to do his work, to write his books, to be seen as the greatest mind in Europe in his day. And so this debate, the bondage of the will Luther versus the freedom of the will Erasmus, for Erasmus was just a scholarly debate for Erasmus it wasn't a matter of God's truth against the error or heresy it was just a matter of intellectual games but for Luther it was the truth of God versus the lie of the devil it was about salvation or damnation it was about the glory of God or the glory of man so here are the two protagonists Luther and Erasmus. Erasmus stands for reason, the Renaissance scholar. Luther stood for revelation in the scriptures as a Christian theologian. For Erasmus, tradition interpreted the Bible. For Luther, the Bible interprets the Bible. For Erasmus, he wrote in cold, detached scholarly reasonings. But for Luther, and you'll see this if you read his book, it was a passionate, engaging debate. Erasmus was all about the works of man, trying to sneak them in and get a little bit for man. And Luther said salvation is all of grace and man has nothing to do with it. That's why Luther said the issue in salvation is the glory of God versus the glory of man. And in these two men, Luther and Erasmus, You have superb representatives of the two sides. You couldn't get better men to represent the two positions. Here is the universal debate in all ages between man and the glory of God. And you've got Erasmus and you've got Luther. Before we analyze the debate more fully, we need to nail down this issue of free will. What does it mean to deny free will? A denial of free will, the position of Martin Luther, a denial of free will does not make man a robot. It does not make man a puppet on a string. A denial of free will does not deny either that man makes choices. It does not deny even that man makes choices freely, willingly, gladly. That's not what a denial of free will is. On the contrary, we insist that man makes thousands and thousands of choices every day. How does each day start? You wake up. You've got to make a decision. Are you going to get out of bed? Or are you going to roll over? And if you are going to roll over, how long are you going to stay there? Those are decisions. Think of the decisions you make when you're driving your car. You've got your hands on the steering wheel. What way do you turn? You've got your foot on the accelerator how strongly do you press the pedal you change gears you decide to look left and right where are you going to park when do you pass when do you not pass thousands of decisions are made by us unconsciously that's true and we go further and we say that man chooses or wills or decides freely you make free decisions every day no one forces you no one compels you No one puts a gun to your head ordinarily and says, you've got to come to this meeting, for example. But you chose, and you chose freely. And now we need to draw it even tighter. Man chooses and chooses freely, according to his own inclination and desire, in earthly, domestic, natural things. Natural things you choose freely but not in supernatural things not in spiritual things the denial of free will then means this that man cannot will or choose the good in one particular area in the things of the spirit of Jesus Christ that man's will is not free but bound when it comes to trusting Jesus Christ and turning from sins when it deals with the glory of God when it Concerns preparing oneself for the grace of God. Then man's will is bound. He cannot choose. But regarding all other things, man can choose. Freely choose. But he can't choose to love God, to turn from his sins, to believe in Jesus Christ, of himself in any way. Only divine grace alone can make him able to do these things. So if man by free will cannot choose good, what does he choose? Well, he chooses sin, always exclusively sin, because his will is bound, his will is enslaved. He cannot choose good, and then to turn it around, he always chooses evil. Now he can choose between one evil or another evil, but he can never choose good over evil and this is the issue at stake in the debate between Luther and Erasmus can man do spiritual good including trusting in Jesus Christ of himself or is his will totally bound so that he can never choose Christ and never do one single good thing in the sight of God that's the issue the issue between Luther and Erasmus and this is what Luther said These are a series of quotes, just three. Free will, wrote Luther, is a non-entity, a thing consisting of a name alone. A thing consisting of a name alone. In other words, it's just a word. There's no corresponding reality behind that word. Again, free will is nothing but the greatest enemy of man's salvation. Free will is the greatest enemy of man's salvation. That's something coming from Luther. You'd have thought he'd have said the Pope. But no, it's free will. The doctrine of Jesus Christ, he says in another place, contradicts the doctrine of free will. One or the other. Jesus Christ or free will. Not free will and Christ. That's what Luther said. What do you think about free will? Now in his work, Luther refutes the arguments of Erasmus. Erasmus wrote his book, The Freedom of the Will, first. And Luther responds. Now, I'm not going to go through Luther's arguments one by one. Rather, I'm going to summarize Luther's arguments against Erasmus and then add a little additional material according to an order of my own choosing. Romans 3. That's why we read this passage. Romans 3, verses 10 and following, There is none righteous, no not one, there is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God, they are all gone out of the way, they are together become unprofitable, there is none that doeth good, no not one. This passage says that the, the natural man, the man outside of Jesus Christ, does not will or do any good this passage says especially if you read on verses 13 and following that the natural man only does evil the natural man only does evil and never does any spiritual good there is none righteous no not one that's emphatic there is none that understandeth there is none that seeketh after God they are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. This is the judgment of the gospel upon mankind. And man always does evil and never does good outside of Jesus Christ. Remember, God's standards are a lot higher than ours. He always does evil and never does good because he is totally fallen in intellect and and will. Verse 11, first part, there is none that understandeth. The intellect of man never penetrated, never will penetrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not one. There is none that understandeth. So there's the intellect of man. And then the will of man is set forth in verse 11, part B. There is none that seeketh after God. Seeking is an activity of the will. I want something. That's a choice a deliberate choice so none that understands and none that seeketh this passage makes it very clear that this is a universal condition, this is the way all fallen men are we have before proved, verse 9, both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin none no one not one all those are the terms of the text it doesn't say well there's some that does good or most of them do evil it says none does good and all do evil universal terms and the result of this judgment of God is that on the judgment day every mouth will be stopped and all the world will be guilty before God verse 19 that's the judgment of scripture the question is do you believe the scriptures and since all natural men in all ages in all the world Jews and Gentiles only do good and never do or will saving good it implies that man cannot will or do good cannot cannot takes us into the realm of ability and the issue of free will is an issue of ability What is man able to do? Let's look at a few scriptural verses that use the word cannot. Matthew 12 verse 34. O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? How can ye speak good things? He's saying you cannot do it. Matthew 7 verse 18. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit a corrupt tree said Jesus that's the natural man cannot bring forth good fruit a good word a good deed a good thought a good inclination Jesus said in John 15 verse 5 without me ye can do nothing and he means here nothing good you can do nothing outside of the grace of Jesus Christ let's turn over if you have your bible open to romans chapter 8 moving now from chapter 3 to chapter 8 i'm going to read you verses 5 to 8 they that are after the flesh that's the unregenerate man they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh that's the intellect but they that are after the spirit the things of the spirit for to be carnally minded is death but to be spiritually minded is life and peace because the carnal mind is enmity against God for it is not subject to the law of God neither indeed can be it's impossible for the carnal mind to be subject to the law of God and then this so then that's a conclusion they that are in the flesh cannot please God they cannot please God absolutely impossible for one unregenerate sinner ever to please God let's summarize what we've seen so far man does not ever will or do good because he cannot will or do good even in the slightest and he cannot will or do good because his intellect and will are wholly evil because there is none that understandeth the natural man can't receive the things of the spirit of God because they're spiritually discerned 1 Corinthians 2 there's none that understandeth, and there's none that seeketh after God because man's complete nature the whole tree is corrupt he's flesh and flesh here as opposed to spirit is carnal and dead so we've looked at Romans 3 we've looked here at Romans 8 Romans 3 verse 9 puts it all slightly differently It says that all men are under sin. Under sin. Sin is a tyrant. Sin is a mighty lord which restrains the sinner and says you cannot do good because you're in bondage to me. Sin treats us as slaves and sin does not allow us as unregenerate men to will or do any spiritual good acceptable to God. Under sin another biblical idea is that of the kingdom of satan so we're under the rule or dominion of the prince of the power of the air we're his willing slaves and one of the things that satan says to those who are his captives you're not allowed free will you're my slave and you will not come to jesus christ because your heart is in my hand i have you because we're sinners that's what it means to be a sinner Romans 14 verse 23 says Whatsoever is not of faith is sin Whatsoever is not of faith is sin An unbeliever by definition does not have faith Whatsoever is not of faith is sin Unbelievers by definition do not have faith Therefore everything that they do is sin You can't break that logic God sees it all as filthy and impure Now, free will, allegedly, is a certain good thing. But whatsoever is not a faith is sin. Man's a sinner. He doesn't have faith. He has no room for anything that pleases God. And so free will is, as Luther says, an empty name. There's no corresponding
0: reality with free will. All right, we're going to pause the lecture for just a few moments, pay uh, pay a couple bills. Um, if you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's Facebook.com forward slash Pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there Pirate Christian. We'll be right back.
3: Python's Flying Circus Church!
2: Welcome to Build-A-God, how can I help you?
3: Hi, I've got this Build-A-God certificate from a fellow co-worker and I came to check it out.
2: Oh, that's nice of your friend. You must be excited. Well,
3: uh, what exactly are we doing here?
2: Oh, you silly man. We're building your very own deity.
3: I don't feel comfortable doing this. Seems sort of like blasphemy.
2: Oh, don't be silly. Everyone does this. Let me help you. First off, you decide whether your God is male, female, or unisex. Well, the Bible talks about the Father,
3: the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it also says that Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day, so he has to be male.
2: You? Okay. Next, we have to define the attributes of your God, like whether he's loving, kind, or compassionate.
3: Well, in the Bible, God is just, he's merciful, he's righteous, and he's wrathful, all at the same time.
2: Okay then. Well, what is your God's take on sin? He fully condemns it.
3: It's pretty obvious what God thinks of sin. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Humanity's only hope is in the blood Jesus shed on the cross.
2: Are you saying your God doesn't accept gays?
3: Don't think so. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah with hellfire and brimstone because of it. I don't think he has a very high opinion of it.
2: C- could you excuse me for one moment? Sure. Hello? Can you get me the mall security? Thank you. Sir, I would be a religious terrorist here. Yes! He's a closed-minded Bible believer. Yes. I'll distract him while I wait for your men to arrive. Thank you.
0: Warning, the denial of the doctrine of original sin or the bondage of the will puts you into the Pelagian camp. Es no bueno. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions in order to continue bringing this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can make a one-time contribution by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. And send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, let's continue with our lecture here on uh, Martin Luther's The Bondage of the Will. Was Martin Luther right? Uh, Here we go.
1: Let me ask you a question. Have you ever wondered why unbelievers can sit under the sound of God's Word and not believe as a Christian? We hear the cross of Christ, Galatians 3 speaks about Christ, set forth openly crucified among you. They hear the cross of Christ, they hear the truth of hell, that God casts all the wicked into eternal destruction. They see mercy in Jesus Christ set forth so clearly, and you're sitting there wondering, how come he can't see it? Why does he not turn from his sins? Why would he ever want to live in his sins and die? How could you make it clearer? Why can't they see it? Well, the Bible says there's a reason. The Bible uses words like blind, deaf, dumb, dead. Or Romans 3, there is none that seeketh after God. If there was, on the other hand, such a thing as free will, then convincing preaching would persuade some. But it doesn't, because everyone who comes to Christ truly confesses that it wasn't of me. God turned me, because I never would have turned. I didn't find it within me. I couldn't come. And God worked in my heart, so that I believed. This denial of free will explains how the gospel is preached and not all believe. Now, Erasmus, of course, did not hold this. And Erasmus had many, many arguments against the truth of the bound will. His first argument is that scripture is not clear scripture is not clear on this issue of free will Luther has many ways of uh, answering Erasmus one of the ways in which he answers Erasmus he says now hold on Erasmus you've written a book in defense of free will and you hold that the Bible isn't clear whether or not there is a free will catch yourself on you can't have it both ways you can't say the Bible teaches free will And the Bible's unclear. You can only have it one way. Luther then says, if you say that the Scriptures are unclear, Erasmus, it's because the Scripture is unclear to you. The Scripture's unclear to you, Erasmus, because you bring presuppositions to the Scriptures which are contrary to the Scriptures, which don't agree with the Scriptures, and you want to read the Scriptures in the light of your framework, and of course to you it's going to be unclear. Erasmus is going to read Romans 3 or... Romans 8, the passage we read, what's he going to say? Oh, that passage is unclear. I don't know what that means. Because he doesn't want it to, to mean what it does mean. And so it condemns him. Luther sets forth clearly though that the scripture is clear. The scripture is the clearest book in all the world. I'll tell you why that is. Think for a minute of an image for clarity from the natural world. What would you say is the picture of clarity in the natural world? I think there only is one answer to that. It's light. Light is as clear a thing as you can get. But when the scriptures tell us about themselves, they say that the scriptures are light. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The scriptures are light. Second Peter 1 says that the scriptures are a light which shineth in a dark place. In other words, the whole world is darkness with thick darkness, not a shred of light in it, spiritually. And there's one book that alone brings light into the world. It's the scriptures. They are a light in a dark place. Luther held, rightly too, that the article of faith, of the bound will, is as clearly taught in the Bible as all the other doctrines. The doctrine of creation, the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of the atoning blood of Jesus Christ, all those doctrines are as clear as the doctrine of the bound will. And I ask you, if we're talking about the clarity of Scripture, what does this verse mean? There is none that seeketh after God. If that doesn't mean that no one ever chose Christ of themselves, what does it mean? What must it mean? It can mean nothing else. That verse is crystal clear and that's just one of them and this is what we have today bring someone the scriptures and they'll say just like Erasmus you're trying to convince me that man's in bondage to sin that he doesn't have free will that's just your interpretation that's just your view and whenever someone says that's just your interpretation he's making a statement about the Bible he's saying that the Bible isn't clear you could take the Bible one way or you could take it another way it's all a matter of interpretation. But of course it's not. Indeed men interpret it differently. The scriptures themselves are clear but some men come to the scriptures as darkness and they twist the scriptures as Peter says to their own destruction. So there was an argument upon the, base, upon the nature of the scripture in which Erasmus said the Bible is not clear. And Luther and, and the whole of the Reformed faith set forth the perspicuity of Scripture. That's an article of faith for all Protestants that the Bible is clear. It tells us the truth of God clearly. The doctrines of salvation. There may be individual passages, you don't know what some verses mean, but the main doctrines, the doctrines of the faith, are, cre- are clear, crystal clear. Then there was another argument which Erasmus brought up. He argued from the Church Fathers. Erasmus brings in Jerome. And origin in support of his position that the will of man is free. Now how did Luther respond to that? Well Luther brings up a point of debate. It says here, Erasmus, now hold on a minute. You said, and this was agreed right at the start, you said that in this argument of free will or not free will, that you would argue just from the scriptures. I'm going to hold you to that. Now you're trying to sneak in, Jerome and origin but you said you wouldn't do that you're breaking the rules that was his first argument and then luther said if you want to quote the fathers well i can quote the fathers too you quote jerome and origin i'll quote augustine what does that do at the very best it gets a tie and he can say my father church father outweighs your father because augustine was the greatest of the church fathers and the latest of the earliest church fathers and the church of Rome itself even confesses that Augustine is particularly the doctor of their church so my father trumps your father in essence he's saying and then Luther goes a step further and he says okay Luther you're okay Erasmus you're quarrying the church fathers but what are you doing with the church fathers Erasmus you're going to the church fathers and these are Luther's words I said he was earthy You're going to the Church Fathers and you're taking all the dung out of the Church Fathers. All the rubbish and wrong ideas, you're taking that and saying, look, this is what the Church Fathers says. I, on the other hand, Luther says, I go to the Church Fathers and when there's dung there, I avoid it. But I take the gold from the Church Fathers. You don't know how to read the Church Fathers, Erasmus. You're taking dung and not gold. And then Luther says, okay, the Church Fathers... Yep, they have some sort of authority. But wherever a man, even a church father, contradicts the scripture, you've got to go with the scripture against the church father. Because Romans says, Let God be true, and every man a liar. Erasmus wasn't content with arguing that the Bible was unclear, or arguing that he had some church fathers on his side. Erasmus used this argument against Luther he said Luther you're preaching that man is a slave to sin and that Jesus Christ must save him by his sovereign grace according to his eternal election and you know all this does Luther it brings civil unrest people are falling out it's happening in Germany it's happening in Holland it's happening in France, in England across the continent people are falling out there is civil unrest Luther let the truth go don't argue so much about it and Luther Luther agrees yes that is true there has been civil unrest in Europe because of the message which I teach but Luther says on the other hand the gospel is still a message of God's truth and think where has the civil unrest come from it didn't come from the wicked deeds of the believers because the believer, he's a sinner and then the truth comes and the truth made him better so now the believer keeps the Ten Commandments imperfectly but still to some degree by God's grace he keeps the Ten Commandments now he's able for the first time to love God and his neighbor that the Bible itself tells him as a member of Christ's spiritual kingdom that he's not to fight that the kingdom of God is not advanced by the sword that on the other hand the Christian is taught forbearance to avoid all manner of vengeance and to turn the other cheek. So if there are rows and fights in Europe over the gospel, it's not the fault of the believer because the gospel made him better. Now who did start the fights? The unbelievers brought the unrest. That's what Luther said. The unbelievers brought the unrest because they are evil already in their hearts. Then the gospel comes to them and they hate the gospel. They reel against it. And they persecute the righteous. And what happened at the time of the Reformation? A papal bull comes forth condemning Luther as a heretic. Martyrs are burnt at the stake. And then Luther points to to the Bible. Didn't Jesus Christ cause a certain amount of civil unrest? And didn't they crucify him? Or to move from Christ to Paul in the Acts of the Apostles and his epistles? Was he not persecuted right across Europe and the Middle East he was arrested several times there were uproars for example in Ephesus and why did this happen well because the devil preserves a sort of deathly peace amongst his followers the world is at peace but then the gospel comes and God in the gospel snatches some out of the kingdom of Satan and the devil kicks up a stink and his children attack the children of light so Luther said yeah there are rows over this gospel but it's not the believers it's the unbelievers and then Luther says "All right, I'll grant you there are all these rows going on and wars and I'm still going to say people died over this I'm still going to say says Luther it's worth it it's worth it even if there are these rows he says "I, I hate people fighting as much as anybody else but it's worth it Because the elect are saved, and then by their persecutions are tried, the reprobate are hardened and perish in their sins, and God's will is done. And if all the world has to be turned into a great battlefield, which no one wants, especially the Christian who longs for peace, well, it's God's will. You go with it. And remember, too, that the most important world is the next world, and we're to do God's will, whatever the consequences. Erasmus had one other argument. And this argument is his main argument. And it's this it's a theological argument this time. Erasmus argues that the Bible's commands imply ability. Erasmus says this the Bible says, keep God's commands, repent and believe the gospel. And if the Bible isn't thereby teaching that God gives us the ability to keep God's commands and to repent and believe the gospel, then God is mocking us. See the argument? God says, do this, keep the Ten Commandments, or believe this, believe the gospel. But if we don't have the ability to do it, isn't God mocking us? He's telling us to do something we can't do if there is no such thing as free will. And therefore, there must be such a thing as free will for God legitimately to bring to us these commands that's his best argument that's the best argument anybody could ever come up with for free will it's a terrible argument, it's a fallacy but it's the best thing you could ever come up with it was the best Erasmus could come up with in fact Luther said of Erasmus Erasmus I'm sorry for you you have such a lousy case here you are the greatest scholar in all the world and you're standing up for free will And you know, after reading your book, which is embellished with all your learning, it's convinced me even more that free will is total nonsense. Because if you can't make a good job of it, nobody can. Anyway, Luther's argument against Erasmus was simply this, a point of grammar. He said, any schoolboy knows that an imperative is not an indicative. Do X logically does not infer that a man has the ability to do X. An imperative, that's a command, do this, is not an indicative. It's not saying, do this, that you have the ability to do it. You cannot argue that way grammatically. And this interpretation of yours makes the scripture contradict itself, which can never be, because the scripture is one, because God is one. You ought to go instead, Erasmus, to the clear passages. And not argue from an imperative, do this, to the ability, therefore I can do this. But you ought to go to the clear passages which have as their purpose setting forth what the will of God can or cannot do. Go to a passage like this, Erasmus. There is none that seeketh after God. Or, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Go to those passages, Erasmus. And then Luther says, Erasmus, if your argument was true, your argument would prove too much. Your argument wouldn't prove that man has a little bit of free will that can finally make the the last step to salvation. Your argument, Erasmus, would prove that free will can do everything. If the commandment, keep, if the commandment, love God and love your neighbor, Implies that man has the ability to love God and love his neighbor. Well, then free will can do everything. And then there's no need for the cross of Jesus Christ. There's no need for the work of the Holy Spirit. And you yourself, Erasmus, though, have said that free will is only a little thing. But is it a little thing that can keep all the commandments of God and love God with heart, soul, strength, and mind? Your position, Erasmus, is contradictory. Contradicts itself, contradicts the scriptures. And then think about it, Erasmus. Can anybody really obey the commands of Scripture? Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Can anybody obey that? Can you obey that of yourself? Can you obey that with one ounce of your own spiritual strength outside of Jesus Christ? No one can do that. Or, here's another command of God. Matthew 5 be ye perfect even as your father in heaven is perfect now if the command implies the ability this means that the unregenerate man has the ability to be as perfect as God is perfect that's the sort of foolishness you end up with if you take a command as implying ability and it must be full ability on the other hand the commands of God do not teach us our ability they don't teach us what power we have The commands of God instead teach us our obligation. They teach us our duty. They teach us what we ought to do and what we will be judged for if we do not do. They teach our obligation and duty. They do not teach our ability. And this is the way God designs his commands. Keep my ten commandments. Love your neighbor. The believer tries to do this and he soon learns. I can't do it. How am I going to love my neighbor? I'm sinful. I don't find it within me. And as he learns that by the power of the command, he says to himself, I can't will or do the good. I have no free will. I need the grace of Jesus Christ. That's what every true believer is taught by the commands of God. Think moreover to one command in Genesis 22, a very famous command. Abraham, kill Isaac. God's purpose wasn't even to have him do it. God's purpose was to test his faith. And that's the commands of God to the unregenerate, telling a man what he ought to do. They're not designed to tell him that he has the power to do it. They're designed to show him, by thinking about the command, that he really can't do it at all. The law, as Paul says, is our schoolmaster to lead us on to Christ. The law says, do this. We see, we can't do it. God have mercy in me, a sinner. And we turn to Jesus Christ alone. Luther, in exploding the fallacies of Erasmus, understood Erasmus's basic problem. Erasmus's problem ran deep. Erasmus's problem lay in his total misunderstanding of the nature of Christianity. Erasmus believed that Christianity was a non-doctrinal religion. That Christianity does not consist in assertions. Christianity, according to Erasmus, is moral and ethical. It has to do with, simply, how you live. It doesn't tell you the truth about God. It's all about being a good person. It's all about, in today's terminology, just being nice. That's what he thinks Christianity is. So everybody does the best that they can. And then God helps those who help themselves. That's Erasmus's religion. Because Erasmus didn't understand the gospel. Erasmus didn't understand himself as a sinner who was lost and undone under sin. Erasmus' heart never cried out, God have mercy upon me, the sinner. He never said, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? He was a stranger to true spiritual religion. And Luther, in combating Erasmus' error, heresy of free will dealt with the grander issues too he said first of all that Christianity is most basically our religion of truth Luther's word was this assertions Christianity consists of assertions God is Lord Jesus Christ died for the sins of his people those are assertions grace is everything in the salvation of the sinner and that's why God revealed himself to us in a book 66 books books contain indicatives statements, stories telling us the truth assertions this is the way it is, this is who God is this is who Jesus Christ is Christianity consists of assertions the believer the Christian receives all these things as truth by faith and by the grace of God known by faith we live and obey God with a spiritual supernatural heavenly life that's the gospel so now you see why the bondage of the will is the hinge hinge upon which the whole controversy turns consider this doctrinally if someone says that man is totally depraved, if he confesses the great orthodox Christian doctrine of original sin that man is born guilty in Adam and fallen and depraved, but if he holds to free will, he really doesn't hold original sin and total depravity. He just pays lip service to it because he sneaks in this doctrine of free will and under, under overthrows the whole doctrine. Think of another truth of the gospel, justification by faith alone. But if this righteousness of Jesus Christ is received by your works, by your good work of, of, of free will, and you're deciding to believe of yourself, well then, it's justification by faith and works. And then, salvation is not all of grace. It's mostly of grace, but partly of you. And then it's not of grace at all. And then too, Jesus Christ is not a true and complete Savior. He's not all our salvation, because part of it is of man. And Christ is that sort of Savior as Lord, that he will be Lord and Savior of all or of nothing. Thus, free will means that the glory does not go to God alone. But part of the glory goes to man the sinner, and therefore the glory of God is lost. And so boasting comes in. And under that scheme of man's free will salvation at the end of the day depends upon man and not upon God not upon God's eternal election and reprobation not upon God's choice but upon man's choice the great Augustine said about the first article of the Apostles Creed I believe in God the Father Almighty that any man who believes that man is saved of his own free will thereby denies the eternal election and reprobation of God does not believe the first article of the Apostles' Creed I believe in God the Father Almighty salvation is His choice that's the gospel and then experientially we know this as Christians in our heart go back to Romans 3 this whole treatment of total depravity and sin it undergirds a sovereign salvation we prove that all men are under sin so that The righteousness of God in Jesus Christ alone might be established. And everybody be convinced that they're all lost and undone. And in that condition, they're looking to Jesus Christ as the Savior. Luther used the word despair. He says, the problem with most men is you preach them the gospel and they don't receive it as good news because they haven't learned to despair of themselves. To despair of their own goodness. To despair of their own works. And so they really never see the need of Jesus Christ so Luther saw this debate as one in which doctrine was definitely involved fundamental necessary Christian doctrine and free will is an article of the Christian faith the opposition to it every bit as much as the doctrine of the Christian trinity Luther saw that if you lose the truth of the bondage of the will original sin goes justification by faith alone goes the whole thing's imperiled and the truth of the Christian religion will fall. Doctrinally lose the truth of the bound will, Christianity comes apart at the seams. And more personally and experientially Luther saw that salvation is the issue. The question is to you what are you depending upon? How do you acquire standing before God? Is it your works Is it your free will? Is it anything you do? If it is, then you are not a Christian. You do not believe in Jesus Christ and you are under the wrath of God. Christianity teaches that Jesus Christ is a true and complete salvation and that salvation is all of grace. And this is Protestantism. This is the Protestant consensus. The little sheet that was handed out at the start contains... References to several creeds. At the the top of the page we have the Westminster Confession of Faith. Article 3 of chapter 9. Man by his fall into a state of sin hath wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man being altogether averse from that which is good and dead in sin is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto every Presbyterian church ought to be a sworn foe of free will moreover the Westminster Confession of Faith at this point is taken up by the Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689 and the Savoy Declaration of the Congregational Churches therefore all Presbyterian Congregational Baptist Churches ought to oppose free will as a deadly heresy I've cited there too some texts quoted by the Westminster Confession against Free Will. So ministers and Presbyterian, Baptist and Congregationalist Churches should hunt free will as an error from hell. The thirty nine articles at the very bottom of the page is the Creed of the Church of England and thence the Church of Ireland. And it says, The condition of man after the fall of Adam is such that he cannot turn and prepare himself by his own natural strength and works to faith and calling upon God. Wherefore, we have no power to do good, to do good works pleasant and acceptable to God without the grace of God by Christ preventing us that we may have a good will and working with us when we have that good will. Same teaching of the Anglican Church. The Heidelberg Catechism, a German creed. Are we then so corrupt that we are wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all wickedness? Indeed we are, except we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. The Belgic Confession teaches the same thing. The Canons of Dort, um, the original of the Five Points of Calvinism, teaches the same thing. The Protestant creeds, apart now from Methodism, which isn't really Protestant, the Protestant creeds are all diametrically opposed to free will as a heresy from the church of Rome the reformers taught the same thing here's John Calvin the papists hold that man through his own free will returns to God and on this point is our greatest contest with them at this day the greatest conflict of the church of Rome Calvin says is free will just like Luther here's John Knox this is a mighty quote from the Scottish reformer the general consent of all that sect is that God, by his foreknowledge, counsel, and wisdom, has no assured election, neither yet any certain reprobation, but that every man may elect or reprobate himself by his own free will, which, which he has, say they, to do good or evil. And then Knox delivers this damning indictment. All these things are forged by their own brains and polished by the finest of their wits, when yet in very deed they are but the rotten heresies of Pelagius long ago confuted by augustine spurgeon i will go as far as martin luther when he says if any man ascribes anything of salvation even the very least thing to the free will of man he knows nothing of grace and has not learned jesus christ rightly free will doctrine what does it it magnifies man into god it declares God's purposes a nullity since they cannot be carried out unless men are willing. It makes God's will a waiting servant to the will of man and the whole covenant of grace dependent on, on human action. Denying election on the ground of injustice, it holds God to be a debtor to sinners. Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, we've quoted him, Calvin wrote a whole book on the subject, The Bondage and Liberation of the Will, Knox, they all held that free will is an idol as dangerous an idol as a statue to some pagan god or some of the christian saints the puritans jonathan edwards who wrote a book against it as well the great divines of of princeton the great giants before the reformation probably the two greatest of them augustine and john wycliffe opposed it spurgeon the prince of preachers as we read there opposed it he had a famous sermon entitled free will a slave william tyndale the great Bible translator was burned at the stake in Volvoort near Brussels in 1535 because of several things and one of them was that he denied free will and therefore they burnt him this doctrine the bondage of the will is at the heart of the reformation free will is the position of Rome always has been always will be and this is why so many Protestant churches are going back to Rome because they do not believe the gospel of Jesus Christ And they're united with Rome on this hinge, the free will of man. And so they go back, because they don't have the faith of Jesus Christ. This doctrine is a fundamental article of the faith. You must hold this to confess the truth of Jesus Christ, that the will of God is bound. And this doctrine, being part of the Bible, a prominent part too, part of the Protestant creeds must be preached often, insistently, antithetically, so that the people of God who hear the preaching of the gospel know that this is heresy to be shunned with all the heart. And it must be believed, believed by you, believed by your children, for the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Amen.
0: Well, there you go. Fantastic lecture. Good stuff. You know, so much I (laughs) have to agree with there. I thought that was very well done. Yeah, and I I wanted to get this out early this week because, like I said, I'm going to build on some of these themes later in the week. So anyway, would uh, love to get your feedback as to what you thought of the lecture. If you would like to uh, contact me and uh, send me your feedback, you can do so by emailing me at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash Pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. Visit our website, click on one of the buttons, fill it all out. We truly can use your help. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.